Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the second week of our series, Who Do You Say I Am? This message comes from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 23. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Now, before we go there, let me just take a moment to, to say one thing. Uh, there's, if you might even look in the notes there, we, we say that this is a PG warning. Uh, we're going to deal with some things later in the message. Uh, I know some people choose to have their kids in the service, which is fine. Uh, we do want to let you know that we are going to touch on some things later in the message that are a little more sensitive nature. And so, you, you know, you may, it's your choice, but you may choose to say, okay, well, maybe we'll take our kids down to the children's program today. Um, I just wanted to give you kind of a heads up of that. Well, we are looking at Matthew 16 and, and this incredible passage. It's kind of the center of all of Matthew. And we started looking at it two weeks ago and then verses 13 through 20, and we're going to kind of expand that up through 23. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew 16, uh, verses 13 through 23, we're going to look at this morning. And, and I'd encourage you to open it up and to keep it open throughout our time so that you could see you know, where the points of the message come from. That you, What I really am trying to do is not give my ideas about things, but really try to faithfully kind of expound on and explain what is in God's word and let it be his message. But let me begin by reading this passage we're looking at, Matthew 13 or 16, starting in 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day to be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for that you are uh, setting your minds on the things of, not on the things of God, but on the things of men. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you again for the privilege that we have to come this morning, Father, to be able to dive into this great passage for the things that are there. Father, I thank you for what you've been teaching me, and I pray now that you get me out of the way. Father, that this would not be my message or my ideas, but Father, somehow you would speak through me to communicate your truth. And Father, help us to see that if it is your truth is, is a challenge that you give to us. Father, that, uh, that our response isn't whether we like the words of men, but Father, how we respond to the words of God. I pray that your spirit would speak to each one of our hearts this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Now, a couple weeks ago, we started looking at this passage, specifically for, you know, 13 through 20, which we just read. And, and uh, I'm not gonna preach the same passage again, uh, but what we realized is when I was going through that, it's, there's a lot there. Actually, last time, we just got the first part of the passage. And so I need to take a few minutes to kind of review kind of the context so that you could see as we get into verses 21 through 23, how it all fits together. The passage is the central turning point of the whole gospel of Matthew. 
And so up until this time, Jesus has been doing ministry. He's been drawing huge crowds because of his teaching, his miracles. But the question overarching everything is, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And here in this passage, we get the first clear answer to that, to that uh, question. And we see that in that answer, there's this confession of truth about Jesus' identity that it, that's the rock of our foundation for who we are and, and what we believe. We pick it up again in verse 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? You're out there, and, and what are people saying about me? In verse 14, you know, they answer, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and, or others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And basically their answer is, you know, word on the street is that you're from God, that your message is from God, and, 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 and you're kind of in the spirit of one of these prophets that have come beforehand. But then he goes another step, and he says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And that's the question that we all have to ask. It's a foundational question, and the answer to that, it can be the foundation of our life. It's the, you know, the, the, the foundation of, of, of everything. And it's the foundation of who is Jesus Christ. And Jesus isn't asking for just a theological question. He's not saying, okay, oh, you've studied this, what do you think about me? But who am I to you, practically? And there's a big difference between the two ideas. You see, it's possible for us to have the right theology about Jesus. Well, I think this about him. But in practice, we really don't believe it. And that's shown out by the fact that if we really aren't submitting our lives to him, we really don't believe that he's God because he's not our God in practice. And so Jesus is asking that practical question, who am I to you? And he asked the disciples as a group, but it's Peter that steps up and answers. And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he's basically saying, we believe that you're more than a prophet. You're not just a prophet that has come from God, that you're unlike anyone that has come before. You are the Christ, the Messiah, you are the son of the living God. Now let me point out here something that we didn't talk about a couple weeks ago. And that is when Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, what does that mean when he says you are the Christ? I think it's common for us to think of Jesus, when we think of his name, well, Jesus Christ. And we almost see that as being, oh, wasn't that just kind of his last name? You know, Michael Ribka. And so, you know, Michael Ribka, the last name. And that's often the way that people deal with it. But actually, Christ wasn't a name. It was a title. It, it wasn't his last name at all. It's actually a title. It's, it's actually the, the word that here, the Greek, it, it's, it's the Christ. It's the Hebrew. It's a translation as the Messiah. And the whole idea is he's the anointed one. He's the prophesied one that, from the Old Testament. And so Peter is saying, you, you know, you're not just a prophet. You're not even just the king. The Messiah, he's going to be the king. This was going to be the king above all kings, the king who's going to make everything right. You're the one that God has been prophesying about for thousands of years that God would send to come and deliver us and to meet our greatest needs. And Jesus is like, yeah, you got that. Now, remember that whole discussion about Messiah and Christ because we're going to come back to that. That's going to be really vital to see, seeing how this all plays out. But Simon Peter gives the right answer to the question, and, and Peter, or Jesus affirms him. Simon, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus says, you got it right. And then he continues, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in, in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he's saying, okay, this foundational truth, the rock, 
The rock is this statement of who Jesus is. And this foundational truth is the foundation of, of our identity, of our purpose, of, of our confidence in life. In fact, when we look at there, Jesus asked Peter, Peter gives the, the answer. And Jesus turns to him and, and literally says, man, this is such a significant thing. I'm gonna give you a new name. Up until then, his given name that everybody knew him by was Simon. And even at, at that one point, Jesus said, you know, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. You know, Barjona, that's what it means. And, and that was his name. And Jesus said, now I'm gonna give you a new name, a new identity. And he says, from now on, you are Peter, you are Petros. Well, the interesting thing is that, that was actually not a name. You could go back in ancient literature. It was never used as a name anywhere up until this point in time. So he's taking a word. It means stone, a rock. From now on, you know, you are now not Simon. You are a rock. You are a stone. This is based on this confession and what you believe about me. You have a new name. You have a new title. I'm going to build the church and you're going to be a part of that. And so you have a new purpose in life. Now, one of the things that's important to realize is that we can hear that and say, man, that was awesome for Peter. But for any of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ and we have this relationship with him, this isn't unique to Peter. For all of us, when we have this thing, Jesus looks at us and said, okay, you are now a new person. I'm giving you a new name. I'm gonna give you a new purpose. It's actually taught throughout scripture, but one great passage in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, that behold, the new has come. We're not the same person anymore. We have the new purpose. We have a new identity. And, and not only that, we have a new confidence. You know, because we were like, well, well, you know, well, what can I do? Well, look what he says. And I will, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we often will read this and we'll say, well, what he's saying is going to build the church and, and Satan's going to attack and somehow we're going to hang on until Jesus comes back. And that's a lot of what a lot of people think. But you've got to look at it. What's he saying here? He talks about a military weapon. What is the weapon? The gates. Well, who has the gates? Hell. Well, do gates attack? No. Gates are defensive weapons. They're not offensive weapons. And so he's saying, okay, I'm going to establish my church and the church isn't just to hang on and let Satan attack us. No, we're called to, to establish a church that we move into Satan's cult, uh, territory that we take and literally the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the advance of the church. It doesn't always seem that way. It doesn't always feel that way. There are times that it looks like, man, evil seems to be advancing. And, and, and we, I don't always understand God's purposes, but this is the promise. And we can have hope and confidence even when it doesn't look like, when we don't understand. Why? Because it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about our, you know, any church, any people. The foundation that God builds his church upon, the true foundation is the identity of Jesus Christ. And that's powerful. Now, we look at this and you see, then comes a part that doesn't seem to fit. Because here you have Jesus saying, okay, well, okay, you've got this right. And on this foundational confession, I'm going to build the church and the church is going to expand. You have a new identity, you have new purpose, and the church is going to expand. The gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. And we're like, man, we're all excited. And then right after that, Jesus says in verse 20, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, don't just read over that. Think about it. Doesn't it seem a bit strange to you 
that here you have, you know, right after they get this right, we've got this celebration, you've got this right, you've got this incredible statement, I'm gonna build my church, and, and you, Jesus says, you've got to write the most important truth in all the history of the world. Now, don't tell anybody about it. And you're like, what? I mean, we, we've got to, it seems strange. We've got to ask, why did Jesus charge his disciples to tell no one he was the Christ? I mean, think of it on a smaller scale. And this would be a much smaller scale. I mean, if I come and I pull some people together and to say, hey, we, I, found, you know, I found the cure to cancer. I mean, it's actually easy. It's inexpensive. We can get to people. We can do this. It's going to save you know, millions of lives. It's, it's incredible. And we're celebrating. And we're just like, man, this is great. Cancer won't be able to stand. And I said, okay, that's great. Well, now, the next thing is we've got to make sure not to tell anybody. No, this is incredible news. We're supposed to tell people. And, but here, that's what we have. This is the most important news in human history and Jesus said, don't tell anybody. Now, why? And what we're going to see is the reason why is actually linked to what happens next. Here's what the problem was. And for the Jews of that time, when they would talk about the Messiah, the Christ, it, again, it was a title, but it was a political title as much or maybe even more than it was a spiritual title. Because everyone at that time assumed that God would send the Messiah as a political leader. They saw the greatest problem that they faced was that there was external evil in the Roman Empire. They were oppressed by the Roman Empire. And so God was going to send, they believed, this Messiah to be this political figure that would come, that would overthrow Rome, that would defeat the, you know, the, you know, the Roman power and set up you know, uh, 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 um, his kingdom centered in Jerusalem. He would be a political king. Now, here's what Jesus realized. If that's what everybody thought the Messiah was, and people started talking about, he, the Messiah has come. They were going to interpret him not for who he was, but who they thought he was, who they wanted him to be. And what happened if everyone then started hearing this, they're going to try to force him to be a political king. And not only that, but they're going to talk in such a way that creates that expectation. And what happens with the religious leaders? If suddenly you have, this is the Messiah, this is the true ruler, all the religious leaders suddenly become very angry with Jesus. They need to get rid of him. What happens with the Roman leaders? If suddenly people are saying, this is the true king, the king of kings, the one who's going to defeat Rome, suddenly the Roman political leaders are going to say, hey, this guy's a threat. We need to get rid of him. And it would lead to a crisis that might result in something like his arrest and trial and execution. And what Jesus is saying is, I know I'm come to die, but it's not time for me to die yet. And so don't tell anybody because I don't want to force that conclusion. That's going to come, but not yet. So that's why he's telling them not to tell anybody. And so what he says is not only don't tell anybody, but now let me start to explain to you about who the Messiah really is. Because that vision that people have, that's the wrong vision. It's a wrong understanding. And so you see that in the next verse, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples basically what he meant by Christ, by Messiah that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's not that this would happen, that he must. That's why he came. That was his purpose. That was God's plan. Now, as he started to do this, Peter is listening to that and saying, Jesus, no, that you got the wrong plan. You don't understand. You know, you're supposed to be a political Messiah. And so Peter responds in verse 22, he took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it for you, Lord, this shall never happen. And he uses this incredible strong language and saying basically, you know, that's, that's wrong. And then Peter, Jesus responds to that rebuke in verse 23. He turns to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. 
Now I read that and I think part of that is that when you see this whole passage, you talk about going from a spiritual high to a spiritual low really quickly. And here you have Peter who just confessed Christ and Peter and you know, Jesus is like, man, you're right, you're Peter and I'm giving you a new, t-, you know, and then the next thing calling him Satan. And I could just imagine him even going home that night. You know, his wife comes and he says, how's your day today? Oh man, it started really good. You know, Jesus asked me this question. I got it right. And, and Jesus was praising me. He even gave me a new name. He, he called me Stone. And, and he's going to, you know, use me to help build this new church. Just, man, that's amazing. Then what happened? Well, then he called me Satan. You know, it's like, oh, man, it just kind of went downhill from there. You know, and on a side note, this is actually an evidence of the truthfulness of the Bible. I mean, some people will argue, well, these were all these stories that were made up to try to build, you know, the following of Jesus. Hey, listen, if you were making, if you were trying to make up stories and build a following, you wouldn't put the story in here. And Peter's one of the early leaders of the early church. And so here you have this leader, and you wouldn't say in your founding documents, you know, the leader of the early church, yeah, Jesus called him Satan. I mean, think about it practically, all right? Let's say, you know, if you're inviting somebody to our church, and you say, oh, you got to come to our church, and oh, you got to hear our pastor. Well, tell me about you. Oh, well, you know, well, he was kicked out of seminary because he was cheating, and, and, and all, his, you know, all his professors, they would call him Satan because that's what they thought of him, but you got to come hear him. And it's like, I'm not going to hear that guy. You know, it's just kind of like, and that's not a very very encouraging story. And that's basically what we have here for Peter. So why is it in there? Because it happened. And, it, and it's just telling us the truth. And the beautiful thing is that even people that mess up, God still uses. And so, so it's there and, and it's, it, there's truthfulness. Now, what's the problem? Is that Peter is trying to correct Jesus because he has an understanding of the Messiah of who he expected the Messiah to be. It's a problem not only for Peter, it was a problem for all the people then. It's actually still, in a different way, a problem for people today. Now, the people then, they looked at Old Testament passages and many of them would talk about the Messiah and many of them would talk about him coming as a king, that he was a you know, son of David, a king like David, and, and that he would defeat evil and injustice and he would set everything right and he would establish his kingdom. Now, there were some prophecies, like in Isaiah, that talked about a suffering servant. But no one had ever put together these prophecies about suffering with the Messiah because they didn't seem to fit until Jesus. And so suddenly Jesus is pulling them together. What happened is, no, they focused on, on the promised king who would establish a kingdom and who would be victorious and, and who would make everything right. And, and they're sitting there saying, how in the world could a, a Messiah, a king, who defeated injustice do so by dying? It doesn't make sense. And so that's why Peter responds the way he does. He's offended. Ever since he was young, he was taught about the Messiah. He's looking forward to this Messiah who would come and defeat evil and injustice and make everything right and, 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 and establish his kingdom. And he's thinking by taking a throne in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, okay, you're right, Peter. I am the Messiah. I am going to do all those things. I'm going to, to, to go to Jerusalem and defeat evil and injustice, but not by taking a throne, but by taking a cross. And Peter's like, no, no, you don't understand. The cross and the throne are opposite. You know, throne is victory and that's ruling and that's, the cross is shame. It's, it's torture, it's, it's defeat. And Jesus is saying, no, that's, I've come to win the victory by dying. Not to take power, but to lose, to lose it. Not to rule, but to serve. I've come to defeat evil and to put everything right, but through my death. So now Peter, like everyone else, expected something and they wanted a 
Messiah that would be politically victorious. And what happened is they did something that we tend to do as well. They were reading the Bible, but somewhat selectively. See, they were looking for the parts that agreed with what they wanted to believe. And so they were only looking for the parts that talked about the Messiah's victory, and they were ignoring the other parts because they were looking for what they expected to hear. And so as a result, they had this wrong view of the Messiah, and their expectations blinded them to the truth even when Jesus was right in front of them. And here in, John, in Matthew 16, Jesus is making it clear. He says, I'm, I came, but my battle isn't a political battle, it's a spiritual battle. And the great enemy isn't the Romans out there, the great enemy is sin. And, he, and see, they wanted, again, the Messiah that would look at that and say, the enemy is out there, defeat them for us and put us in charge. And he's saying, no, I've come to establish the kingdom, but the enemy isn't there, the enemy is here. And the issue isn't getting the Romans to bow their knee to God's authority. The issue is for each one of us to bow our knee and own heart to God's authority. But because it was not the Messiah they expected, Peter struggled. Now, Peter eventually got it, but there are many people who never did. See, ultimately, it's, it's rooted in the idea of what do we think to be our greatest need? See, because what they thought was the greatest need was out there, political oppression, Rome, you know, you've got to do this. You've got to put us in charge. You've got to give us power. You've got to give us freedom. But God saw a far deeper need. The problem, again, wasn't out there. The problem was in here. The problem is our sin. And Jesus' message to us, was to them and to us, is I didn't come to deliver you from that, from the thing you want deliverance from. It's not about delivering evil, from the evil of the Romans. It's not about giving you political power. It's about our own evil and our own hearts and Jesus didn't come with political clout, but in loneliness and meekness, he came to die in our, in our place. See, even in this part of our problem is we think our greatest need is out there, and we also want to, in the midst of that need, to still be our own God. You know, let me to tell you, basically, I want to have a Messiah, but let me tell the Messiah what he should do for me. You know, these are the things that you should do. These are the problems that you, you should fix. And, and I, I still call the shots. And when Jesus failed to do what they expected, they rejected him. And that's still why people reject Jesus today. You know, we want him to be the Messiah we expect, the Messiah that we hope for, the Messiah that will do our own bidding, who will fix the problems in our life that we tell him to fix, and, and who will basically leave us in charge on the areas that we don't want him to mess with. In fact, I often talk to people who and will tell me something along the lines, well, I believed in God and I stopped believing in God. Well, why? Because, well, I had this problem. I had this need and I prayed and God didn't answer it. God didn't do what I expected. And basically, they're saying it's the exact same thing. I had an expectation. He didn't deliver. He wasn't the Messiah that I expected. I brought what I thought was my greatest need, and he didn't bow to my will. And so how can I believe in a God like that? Well, that's not rejecting the Jesus who is. That's basically saying I'm arguing for the Jesus that I want them to be. See, it's not about the Jesus we ex want or expect, but Jesus is the Messiah that we need. And that's what you see him saying. According to the Bible, according to God, as he teaches in the Bible, our greatest need isn't getting supernatural help and pursuing our agenda. It's not a problem out there. It's our problem in here. It's our sinfulness and our broken relationship with God. And it's a message that Jesus taught his disciples that so offended Peter is still offensive to many today. 
Verse 21, from that time, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised again. That Jesus was and he is the Messiah that came to defeat evil and injustice and, and set everything right to establish a kingdom. But in doing so, he dealt with what was in reality our greatest need. And he redefines that as long as that I say, well, you've got to do this. This is the problem you've got to fix. We will never be able to understand the true Jesus. You see, the greatest need, again, isn't evil out there. It wasn't the Romans back then. It isn't some political or financial problem that we might have now. It's not the thing that you think, well, if I just had this, then I would be happy. Our greatest need is the sin that, conf- that, that shapes our life, that controls us. It's a broken relationship with God that is the result of sin. And what it means to accept Jesus Christ, to in a sense make this profession, you are not only the, my Messiah, you are my son of God, God himself, is that I can't insist that he be the Messiah that I expect him to be or that I demand, but that I accept him for who he is. I realize and admit to him that he came, he came and suffered and died because I had a problem with sin. I agree that this is my problem. It talks about Romans chapter three. And now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. You see, it's not about a problem that we can fix and try harder. That's religion. No, it's a righteousness from God that's apart from the law, apart from anything we do. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They were always pointing to this. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ who all believe. That's what Jesus came to do. And so how do we come to Jesus? We confess our sins. That means not just, I admit that I did something wrong. No, I agree with God. I agree with God, this is my core need. This is my, not only that I've done wrong things, that I'm, I'm, my sin, heart is sinful, that, that I want to be in charge of my own life, and I, and I repent, that I realize that I need to not only change, I can't change, so I give God the right to change me. I ask him to change me from the inside out. And then I put my faith in what he did for us on the cross, that I, that I trust this righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe but it means that we accept him for who he is. Now, the question is, have you ever done that? And again, there might be some, well, I'm trying hard and I'm trying to, no, this is not about trying hard, not about doing, not about God helping you. It's about us coming and admitting that we had a desperate need we could never fix on our own. And Jesus Christ came to do it by coming and, coming and living a perfect life, earning God's reward, and then at the cross, now taking upon himself our sin and God's punishment on our sin so that all who believe him, he now takes our sin and he puts it on Jesus and he takes Jesus' righteousness and he puts it on us so that we have this righteousness of God through faith in Jesus all, for all who believe. Now, we struggle with that. One of the reasons is that it, that's not the God we expect. And we run into this temptation of trying to reshape Jesus to fit our desires. Now, Peter and the people of his day, the Jews of his day, were looking for a political messiah. They were looking for someone that would deal with the problem of Roman oppression. Now, that's not our issue of our day. We live in a society that's defined by this me-focused culture that's swimming in commercialism. And we, and we then try to redefine Jesus and, 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 you know, by the values of our time and our culture, this Americanized Jesus that's you know, one part genie, that if we just pray right, he's gonna give us what we want. And, and, he's, and he's one part fan club that he just is affirming us and telling us that we're doing right. And, and you know, he's one part uh, therapist and financial advisor. And, and that's what we often think is we have this idea that this God that we have made. Now let's go back to, to, to Jesus and Peter. 
And Jesus, you know, Peter, you know, starts to explain to, you know, to, to Peter, here's what I'm going to do. Peter says, no, you shouldn't. You've got to fit this. And, and what does Jesus come back with? Get behind me, Satan. That's, that's a satanic distortion. My friends, we've got to realize that when we try to redefine Jesus, Jesus' words to us is, no, that's a satanic distortion. That's not from God. That's not who God is. We need to accept him for who he is. And who he is, that means he's going to sometimes contradict you. Sometimes he's going to confuse you. Sometimes he's going to make you mad because he exists outside of us as an authority. And we can't then just rebuke him because we don't like what he's saying, nor should we rebuke someone who's accurately reflecting who he is. People will say, but, you know, but that, the Jesus, I believe, you know, this is, this is what I think of Jesus. Now, let me just even put in practical step, or terms. If somebody comes and they say, oh, they come to our church, I heard about your church, and we come, they show up here, and uh, they're like, man, I, I heard about your church, and I'm, I'm excited to be here, you know, but from what I heard, I envisioned you a lot different. You know, when I envision like a great pastor, I, I envision like this guy, it's like 6'6", six, six, you know, handsome, full head of hair, got a deep voice, you know, I'm really athletic, you know, we're all really funny, makes everybody laugh all the time, and so that's what I, I get to know you, and you're kind of disappointing. You know, it's not kind of what I expected. You know, kind of like, I was hoping for more. And, and, but you know what? Just be that. Just, just you know, if, if, if you be the guy that I expect, then, hey, we're going to come here. We're going to be happy. That's, I want a relationship with that perfect pastor. And what do you think? I mean, how do you respond? I mean, that's silly. And the fact is, I'm, I'm sure that you expect that, that you want that, but the fact is, I'm not that. And you wanting that will never make me that. And as much as you consist, continue to insist that I have to be that for me to have a relationship, you'll never have a relationship with me because that's not who I am. Well, there's that same idea that when we look at a, in our relationship with Jesus, there is a Jesus, the Jesus that is revealed in the Bible. And if you believe in any other Jesus other than that, you're believing not in the true Jesus, but one that you've made up in your own mind. All you've done is you have a God that you make up that's a projection of your own wishes. And so when people say, well, I don't, you know, I won't have this, and I don't believe, a God that I believe in wouldn't do this. And well, that's not the God that is, who has revealed himself. That's your own wishes. That's, that's not a God outside of yourself. That's yourself saying, I want to make my own, my own ideas my God. And here's what you need to realize. You know, you don't get a personal Jesus. You don't, my Jesus is like this. It's there is no personal Jesus. It's not like Burger King Jesus. Have it your own way. You know, it's not like Build-A-Bird Jesus that you kind of get to design and assemble the deity that you like best and you get to decide what you put in and what you put out. No, the fact of the matter is all those things are not the true God. There is one God. There's one Jesus, the Jesus that is revealed in the Bible. And when he asks, who do you say that I am? What is the answer? And if it's, and if it's, you know, when he starts to say, well, here's what I say. Well, we argue with him. And if we're like Peter, he's going to come back and say, no, that's a satanic distortion. That's not the me. The only way to accept him is to accept him for who he is. Now, if we accept him for who he is, then what happens is that acceptance, that confession of who he is becomes a rock in our life. But it has to be based on truth and what is revealed in the Bible. And Jesus tells us that this true confession of who he is is the only rock. On this rock, I will build my church. On this rock, the gates of hell will not withstand. Now, the, contempt, the cult, or temptation of our culture is to try to reshape that. 
And even for churches, you know, all the time I'll hear, it's like, well, if you just make it a little less appealing, but I mean, if you talk about Jesus being the only way to salvation, that's kind of offensive to some people. You know, well, just soften that up. And hear that. And what you need to realize is that's our problem is that there's a temptation to adapt this confession to our cultural values. And, and to, in a sense, to, to adapt it, to make it more acceptable. But remember, the confession that is the rock is the truth. It's Peter got it right and said, now you've got it right. If you build on that rock, that's a rock of life. If we adapt it, it's not the truth anymore. And so again, in churches, there are Christian leaders of our time who feel and argue, if we want to bring people to Christ, you know, we've got to take some of the things out, soft pedal, stuff that's out of line with, you know, don't talk about sexual ethics or things like that. That's offensive to people. Well, again, my friends, it's not only the truth of Christ. If he is the Messiah, if he is God, that means he is God over all things, of all times, of all places, and what he says is true. And I can't claim that he is God and then suddenly say, well, but his word isn't God here. It isn't sovereign over this. And so what we need to realize is that we need to say as our church, even in the early church, um, you know, that wasn't popular then. And, and I know in the short run, it might work in a sense to seemingly say, okay, if we soft pedal this, if we don't say certain things, that might work in the short run. But you know what? When it, the promises on this rock, I will build my church and I would rather have the power of God, the promise of God, than, than whatever I would gain by compromising. And that's a value that is deeply held, not only by me, but by, by our church, by our elders. It's, it's actually even... Um, and true, you see it in one of our core values, our first core value. Our very first core value as a church is this. Our chief end and highest aim is to glorify God. That is what we exist. And that means that we're committing to honoring and glorify God even when it's unpopular, even when it goes against the culture, even if it might mean people leave our church over certain things. In fact, one of the points that we have with that, that is practically, what does that mean for us? We will be committed to doing what is right as defined by the Bible and doing what, is mo- what most glorifies God, even if that course of action is not popular and or if it appears that doing so will be to the church's temporal disadvantage, even if it hurts us, even if it, you know, why? Because our goal is to be faithful to God and to his word on all things. Now, let me take an issue and make this extremely real and practical. Okay, and this is where I realize that we may start stepping on some toes. But I want you to realize that, again, this is why we're doing this. And it's because we believe that God is sovereign over all things and we're committed to God's word. We are now in voting season and we have started on some uh, constitutional amendments in the state of Ohio. Some of which I think the Bible is extremely clear. And, and I want you to know, again, if the Bible speaks clearly on the issue, then we are responsible to, to speak God's voice. Specifically, we're talking about issue number one. And, um, and I realize if we talk about this, we've had people that get upset and they'll leave. And, and, and issue one, though, is that you say, how do you dare talk about politics? Issue one is dealing about the killing of unborn babies. The Bible speaks on this issue and has spoken on it for thousands of years versus before Roe first Wade. The Bible is clear. God is a creator of life, that God creates life from the very point of conception, that there are numerous passages to talk about. This fifth commandment says, thou shall not murder. And in Jeremiah 1, for example, it says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, that God knows us from the very beginning of conception. The Bible is clear on that issue. And people say, well, don't talk about politics. This is not a political issue. 
This is a biblical issue. It's an issue of God's sovereignty. It was biblical beforehand, and now that we put it on a, on, on a, on a ballot, it doesn't mean like, okay, well, now it's supremely political and we take it off of biblical. No, it's biblical, and if we make it political, God is still sovereign over that. He is still Messiah, still setting things right, still Son of God, and his truth is sovereign over everything that is said. And so I believe, as a follower of Christ, God is sovereign over everything, and it isn't like, well, just this is political, well, he, that's, I'll take that off, the, off the, uh, the plate. No. Now, some people will argue, but you don't understand, this is a woman's right to have her own body, and but that whole argument is, is based on deception. See, why? Because when we're talking about abortion, we're not talking about what a woman does with her own body. It's a question of what she does to a very separate body, a separate person that is living inside of her. Why? Because we know scientifically, this isn't just biblical, we know scientifically from the moment of conception that you have a different person with different DNA, a whole different, you know, within, a, you know, within six weeks, a different heartbeat, a different bloodstream, it's, you know, brain waves, all of this, it's a, a different person. And, and ultimately, when people are saying, well, women should have the right, basically what they're really saying is that this baby is inconvenient to me, and so I should have the right to kill it, and because I don't want it to be inconvenienced. No, the fact of the matter is it's, it's, it, it's, it's a terrible thing. Let me, let me again go another step. And again, this, yeah, is very, I think it needs to be said this directly. This past week, the biggest international story has been all the horrific things that have been happening in Israel. And it has been terrible. The terrorism and the, the murder and things have been absolutely horrific. And some of the worst evils were done in this little village or kibbutz called uh, Kafaza or Kafar Aza, which is located less than a quarter mile from the Gaza border. Over 200 residents of this little kibbutz were, were found slaughtered. But included in that was nearly 40 babies and young children, some of which were decapitated and just, you know, their ba little babies, their bodies were defaced and left out there. And you look at that and you say, that's terrible, that's revolting. That's, you know, it, it, we hear about that, it makes our stomach crawl and, and it is an unthinkable evil, and it is. All right, let me ask you, how is that different than what happens in Planned Parenthood? How is that different than what happens at an abortion clinic? See, the only difference is those babies in Israel were a few months older. And, and those babies were out of the womb so we could see them, but, but the babies that are being aborted are just as much human lives and are just in the same way. I mean, the abortion are literally chopping them to pieces. But instead of letting them out there so people could see and take pictures, well, we now hide that as soon as we can as medical waste because we don't want anybody to see these parts of human beings that are being slaughtered. My friends, this is an issue that is a biblical issue. And so, yeah, I know that we're stepping on toes and I know, but I encourage you to say, it's not a matter of what I think or what you think or what our... It's a matter of what God says on this. And if God speaks clearly, you see, then he's sovereign over all things. Sometimes you hear people talk about uh, Germany and the Christians in Germany. How could the church be silent when all that stuff was happening? And we have an opportunity of speaking on this. And if we don't speak, if we don't vote, you see, we're just as complicit in what's the murder of these babies as what the German Christians were of just accepting and overlooking the murder of the Jews at that time. And so let me strongly encourage you, please vote. Please, you know, not only vote, let your voice be known in any way that you can. 
it is something that is so important. It's a biblical value. We're not speaking about politics. I'm speaking about the Bible. Now, I know I've made people uncomfortable for more than one reason. And that is that I want to run towards something else that the fact is, is that many pastors avoid talking about this issue for the very practical reason that we don't want to offend people in our congregation who have had an abortion. And I know that if all the studies prove to be true, between 20 to 25% of the women in this room right now have had an abortion. Now, for starters, if you're sitting there saying, oh, you're crying in your seat, and you're thinking, oh, it's terrible, and this is, you're not alone. There's a lot of women in here that have had that, that are struggling with this now. And I want to tell you, it would be very tempting for me to say, because I'm, not, I'm actually not a confrontational person, it would be really tempting just to avoid this. And, because my goal isn't, isn't to condemn, it isn't to make you feel uncomfortable. But I also realize as a pastor, the loving thing to do, according to the Bible, is not to avoid this issue and keep you from being uncomfortable. Because right now, if, if you're very uncomfortable, it's because there's an open wound that is not healed. And, and the important thing isn't to say, well, let's not talk about it. Let's not call it a sin because, you know, the, that, that might wound you. That might, you know, keep hitting a, a sore spot. You know, Jesus Christ described himself as the great physician that came to heal the sick. And think about it. A good and loving physician doesn't come in and if you say, well, it's wrong. Well, this part really hurts. Well, I touch, oh, well, it hurts again. Well, okay, well, I won't touch that. Well, no, that's, there's a wound or there's a broken bone. That's the part you have to touch. And the great physician is going to come and touch the, the, the thing that is, that is hurting the most because that's what he has to heal. And so when we talk about this, I want to be consistent with the heart of the great physician. I think that God is calling me to do this. I prayed about this a lot. And I think that God is calling me because I think that there are people out there that you've got deep wounds that you don't want me to address, that you're really uncomfortable right now. And the fact of the matter is that God's saying, no, I, I don't want you to walk out of here without being healed. And yes, it's painful. And I've felt, talked with a lot of women that over, over the years, they've hidden something. I've never admitted to my husband. Or, and yes, it's painful. God wants to heal. And you might be saying, but God, how can he heal that? I want you to realize that for the women who have an abortion, your sin is not beyond God's grace. And I want you to realize, okay, let's think about this. Let me illustrate even in this. Look to the cross. Okay, at the cross, if you would say the greatest evil of all time, the greatest sin that was ever committed is if you could take, if, if due to a sin against somebody that is really powerful or somebody that is, that is really innocent, and that's a great sin. And if you were not only to do that, but if you were to kill or torture that person, and even worse, to take joy in that, that would be the worst possible sin. So the worst possible sin is that you took the most powerful, the most innocent being of all human history, Jesus Christ, and you put him on the cross where you not only execute you, you torture him, and that people were mocking him and glorifying in his death. When you talk about the worst possible sin in all human humanity, that's it. And what does Jesus do as he looks out from the cross, speaking to those people that were in the process of doing that? He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And my friends, if Jesus can look at the people who were doing that to him, is there anything that is in your life that, did, oh, oh, I, can't, I don't want to do with them? That's a deception of the evil one. To say that your sin is greater than God's grace. And it's not just abortion. I know that there are people here that you have things that you have hid for, you know, for years, for decades. Things that you've you know, never told another person. 
And I remember even, you know, when, when I came to this church new, I had somebody come up to me one day and you know, I come here and he pulled me aside and he said, I want to tell you. And he told me some things that were in his past and some things he was really ashamed of. He said, I just want you to know, is it okay for me to go to church here? And my heart broke. I was like, yeah, you know, yeah, you're forgiven. He said, well, don't tell anybody. I said, oh man, I pray that you will get to one day that you're willing to tell people and you're saying, that's not who I am, that's who I was and I've forgiven, but God's grace is greater than all my sin. And when I talk to people that are buried by that, you know, and they said, I can't deal with it. No, that's a wound that God wants to heal. And will you let him heal that? Will you bring it to him and knowing that as painful as it is, it's painful only because the physician wants to touch it, wants to heal it, wants to deal with it make you whole and if he doesn't then what's going to happen it's going to continue to get infected see the question is will we come to christ and let him meet our deepest needs and for some that may be a deep need that's a steep wound this deep scar that's something that is there that you've just never been willing to admit that god wants to heal today there might be some that you're saying it's like man i just need to be aware that i need to come to christ that that's not about me doing it's not about I need to admit, confess with him that I've got the sin problem, that I'm in charge of my own. I just need to come and trust in him that first, that, you know, fully for that first time. And there might be some that you're like, yeah, I'm just struggling with him and man, I keep asking him to do this and he's letting me down. And you realize that, man, I'm struggling with him because I'm trying to make him into the Messiah that I expect him to be. And it's keeping me from accepting him as the Messiah who is. And because of that, I'm missing the relationship that I I long for that I desperately need. Wherever you're at, and if Jesus is speaking to you today, let him meet your deepest needs. Don't walk out with the wounds. Come to him and, and the fact, realize that, that he is the loving. Even if you mess up and he looks to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And yet he said, okay, Peter, you're still the guy that I'm going to use to build the church. Because that's the gracious God that we serve. We come to him, we come to the cross and experience that grace. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.